Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. John Wood Jr. is a leader at Better Angels, which is a national citizens movement to reduce political polarization in the United States, to bring liberals and conservatives together to understand each other beyond stereotypes, forming red-blue community alliances, and teaching practical skills. It's led by one of my teachers, somebody who I've trained with in marriage family therapy, Dr. Bill Doherty. But John, I'm so glad to have had his voice on this podcast. He is a national leader for Better Angels, but he's also a former nominee for Congress. He's the former vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, and he's the author of an upcoming book, Transcending Politics. Okay, so that's all the bio stuff, but this conversation, John does something that very few people with his pedigree do. He centers the word love in this conversation and love as a duty and our ability to listen across our differences and and engage and connect meaningfully across our differences is how we show patriotism. Ah, there are some things that he says at the end too in a direct note to all of the Sidewalk Talk volunteers. I said to him, I said, you did that better than anybody that's ever come on this podcast. So make sure you listen to the end. And he gives us this beautiful history lesson on why things have become more divided, not only in the United States, but potentially worldwide. I think some of these things apply to other countries around the world as well. So a really wise and heartfelt dialogue. John Wood Jr. from Better Angels. John Wood Jr. from Better Angels. I'm, I have been a fan of Better Angels for a long, long time, partly because I've trained with Dr. Doherty, who was one of your co-founders. How are you involved with Better Angels and how did it start? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on, Tracy. Um, I learned a little bit uh, about your work and the, the work of uh, your organization, and uh, we're very much of a similar spirit. So it's a, it's a pleasure to connect. Um, well, you know, Better Angels is uh, still a relatively young organization, first of all. Um, it started essentially with the workshop in South, uh, I believe it was South Lebanon, Ohio, initially following the 2016 presidential election. Uh, and basically the place where it was held was a place that was evenly split between people who had voted for President Trump and people who had voted for uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, now President Trump. And um, the founder of our organization, uh, uh, well, one of the co-founders, uh, David, Blank David Blankenhorn, uh, reached out to Bill Doherty, who had also become a co-founder and uh, someone who you have studied under, uh, and said, why don't we put together a uh, retreat? 
with folks from both sides of the divide and see if we can't uh, put in place some processes or structures that allow people to find uh, deeper common ground. And so David being one of the countries, I'm sorry, Bill being one of the country's foremost marriage counselors set about putting together, um, putting together some uh, processes to accomplish just that. They reached out to the third co-founder of the organization, David Lapp, who uh, was somebody who uh, David Blankenhart had worked with in Ohio. So David Lapp recruited the people, uh, Bill put together the processes, and that first workshop spanned the course of about three days or so and produced one of the most famous friendships uh, that Better Angels has produced uh, uh, between uh, two people who I'm happy to say are friends of mine, uh, Mr. Uh, Greg Smith and Mr. Kuyar Mustafi. Uh, Greg is an evangelical Christian uh, from Ohio originally, I believe. Kuyar uh, is an immigrant from uh, Iran and a leader in the local Democratic Party up there. And uh, initially, it looked like they might have some really heated kind of disagreements in that, in that, original, in that original workshop. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Greg tells the story where he approaches Kuyar and he says something, he starts to say something along the lines of that the problem he has with, uh, with Muslims can be uh, spelled out in four letters, I, S, I, and before he uh, inserts that last S, Kuyar cuts him off and he says, I know exactly what you're going to say. Uh, and he said, but I want to tell you that my religion has been hijacked. And Greg describes that as a moment that made him think because as he thought about it, he could recall thinking to himself that many people had people who had beliefs that don't reflect his values had hijacked his own religion as well. Mm. And so the outcome of that uh, conversation and that uh, experience between the two of them was that they, they bonded, they became friends. Um, uh, Kuyar uh, uh, pledged to come and visit uh, Greg at his church and Greg pledged to come and visit Kuyar and to spend a worship session at Kuyar's mosque. Mm. And so this forged this sort of unlikely duo between the two of them and they've been visible with us ever since but many similar stories come out of better angels mm -hmm. and uh, my own involvement didn't begin until about the fall of 2017 or so as a volunteer uh, you know i had worked in party politics before that i was actually a nominee for congress in 2014 i was a republican nominee for congress in uh, los angeles uh, and uh, one of the the youngest in the state of california at the time uh, and um, later, um, after serving as a vice chair of the Republican Party of L.A. County, I sort of stepped away from that because my political mission had always been about, bu been about building understanding and mm -hmm. creating context for people to genuinely see each other and to work together from that basis. So I was never very partisan, even if I thought of myself as philosophically generally a bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I looked for uh, opportunities to apply those sorts of values to actual civic engagement. And, you know, you don't find too many of those opportunities. But a friend of mine turned me on to the existence of Better Angels. I uh, went down, drove down from Los Angeles to San Diego to sit in on a workshop. I met Bill Doherty and David Blankenhorn and also Peter Yarrow, Peter, Paul and Mary, who's a big part of Better Angels. Um, and um, I had some ideas for expanding uh, Better Angels presence in the media, in the digital media zone. And so that was sort of my initial entree into uh, uh, leadership in the organization. But since then, my role has expanded to more or less that of a spokesperson uh, and somebody who's 
very much focused on the public communications of the organization. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's a, that's that's a bit of the sort of the circumstances that led me into led me into Better Angels. Well, and you've also prior to Better Angels, you've done some writing and some speaking um, on political and racial reconciliation that predated uh, Better Angels. Yes. Um, yeah. So that was very much, um, those have always been themes of, themes of mine. Um, I, yeah, I am, um, a lot of folks know me for my writings and publications like Quillette and mm-hmm. um, REO Magazine and mm-hmm. uh, a number of, a number of other places. Um, my interest in those topics really just sort of stems from the circumstances of my upbringing, I think. Uh, I was used to saying on the campaign trailer, just pointing out the fact that um, when people would ask sort of how is it that you're able to, you feel qualified to bridge uh, very stark partisan and also ethnic and cultural divides, I would just sort of point to the fact that I was born into a family that was biracial and multicultural and bipartisan for that matter. And that was also widely distributed across economic class uh, as well. And so Mm. for most people in the dialogue space, I think that there's sort of an individual moment, sometimes at least, that folks can point to where they kind of experience a bit of an awakening that says, wow, we really need to learn how to communicate if we're going Mm. to be, create a better society. Um, For me, I've always kind of been, um, so I'm half African American, I'm half Anglo-American, right? Um, my father is uh, much more conservative. He's from the South. He's, uh, you know, he's he was born in 1950. My mother was born a little later in the 60s. She's liberal, African-American, comes from the inner city. My dad comes from great wealth. My mother comes from a much more modest background. And I've got a lot of other relatives who fall sort of in between those, those areas. I've always felt myself uh, to just sort of be in a position to where simply to kind of un- understand who I am as an individual, I've had to kind of interpret a- across categories uh, how it is that the values of people in this one group are actually more closely connected to the values of people in this other group than the differences in their language uh, or behavior might, might make, or politics might make it appear. Mm. Uh, so I've always tended to think in terms of translating, translating the language of values from one side uh, of a divide to the other. And so in that sense, my um, sort of journey in politics uh, that's ultimately led me to Better Angels has been just sort of a natural um, unfolding of the, of the um, sort of life, uh, <laughs> just the life circumstances that I was born into, I guess you could say. Yeah, it sounds like you've been a lifelong learner of this because I can imagine just to show up as a son and love your mom and your dad, you would have to perfect these skills because because <laughs> because they are they were so different and and in your family you had so you had such a broad brushstroke of like you said uh, economic differences and not just racial but also political differences. So so it sounds like you're. You're the ultimate learner from the school of life. <laughs> okay. Well, life is the best teacher, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, so why do we, 
why is this problem? I mean, okay, so let's just frame the problem because I'm sort of being assumptive to everyone. I think that for everyone that's listening, and I think we can agree that things have gotten nastier and nastier and nastier progressively over time, right? Why? Yeah. Why? Do you have a sense of why that is and why we even need better angels to be out there helping us come back together and bridge our differences? Yeah, I mean, there's a range of reasons and they all sort of manage to converge at this point of time that we are uh, in speaking to each other um some of the reasons are very much organic so the united states of america was a country that was you know founded by uh founded by a dominant sort of cultural uh group that was able to i mean there's certainly you know diversity amongst the you know pr the, the different uh, Europeans who, who originally settled the country and you had founded uh, by rich white dudes right yeah well I mean you know it certainly was settled by many people who were not who were not rich I mean people came over here precisely to um, you know uh, make an opportunity for themselves yeah liberty in the world and so forth I mean the people who signed the Declaration of Independence tended to be wealthier. But the point is simply to say that, you know, there was a more of a homogeneous kind of cultural landscape uh, earlier mm -hmm. in the history and people who fell outside of that didn't have the rights that they uh, would fight for and progressively enjoy more and more over the course of time. And so even into the 1950s, uh, the nation was much more homogeneous. Not only that, but you had experiences that bound people in the country across party lines in a way that created a much greater sense of cultural unity and therefore an ability to transcend uh, political divisions. You know, you had Democrats, and this is something that Barack Obama writes about in The Audacity of Hope, that you had Democrats and Republicans in serving in Congress and the Senate together in the 1950s and, and, and uh, 60s as well, and they had their disagreements, but they had all served in World War II together. They had faced down uh, Nazism and were turning their attention towards the common foe of communism and so forth. And, you know, this was also a time where you had three major uh, news stations broadcasting information that everybody heard the same way. You had a figure like Walter Cronkite, mm. who was sort of universally recognized as someone who you could trust, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican. Mm -hmm. And so you had all these sort of common uh, cultural watering holes uh, sort of servicing what was still, I think, a more culturally homogeneous kind of mainstream in American life that was constantly being more and more infused with the cultural and social and political contributions of more and more diverse constituencies in American life. Um, but there was something, I think, of a values and a culture status quo, which at least lent a veneer of stability to a society that underneath that still was uh, sort of uh, uh, boiling the, the, um, uh, the, the, the injustices of uh, racial discrimination and gender discrimination and all of these other things that would erupt in the social turmoil of the 1960s uh, in particular. And as you move into that age of turmoil and as you go from that period of time to now, I think what you have is multiple things. You have uh, many more uh, ethnic and demographic and other uh, 
minority uh, groups, uh, including sexual minorities, uh, including uh, religious minorities, who have greater purchase in uh, our democratic culture, who have and are asserting stronger and stronger voices. You have a technological uh, expansion and fracturing of the national conversation, wherein what used to be literally three TV stations and you know maybe a handful of larger radio shows has become an almost infinite number of cable news channels and talk radio shows and, mm-hmm. and uh, mainstream uh, networks. Uh, and that's before you get to the internet. That's before you get to the blogosphere and YouTube. And all of that is before you get to social media. And so now uh, you have um, uh, this unprecedented ability to basically carve out entire sort of subculture media ecosystems meant to cater to the prejudices of one niche group or another. Mm -hmm. And within all of this, you have suddenly the kind of um, uh, virulent uh, business model in politics and media, Mm -hmm. wherein our ability to either gain votes or establish, uh, establish an audience becomes predicated on our ability to radicalize Americans uh, against one another or people against one another mm-hmm. on the basis of tribal markers and ideological uh, uh, and polarized political thinking. And so suddenly politicians can succeed, at least individually, by sowing uh, between the American people. Media networks can achieve audience growth for themselves by stimulating the fear and the antagonism uh, that exists. Uh, between the American people and, and then naturally and then artificially expanding it. Um, and uh, suddenly all of our incentives in our politics and in our media and other parts of American life uh, become, they push in the direction of this kind of division. So all that to say that there are natural reasons why we are more divided because the the, the, the challenge of diversity is that there's less of a common starting point to begin with for us to understand one another. So the work of empathy becomes necessary to build the bridges across the differences in our experiences. But the additional difficulty lies in the fact that I think because of the way media has changed and because of the way political incentives have shifted over time, suddenly major institutions in American life are actively pushing against our ability to transcend these natural, cultural, and demographic divides. And so that's why you need organizations like Better Angels uh, and the sorts of sidewalk talks and living room conversations that other folks uh, are pioneering uh, because the activity of dividing the American people is actually an organized institutional effort. And I don't mm. think it's necessary to say that. I think it's just, a, it's just an easy observation to make about the incentives uh, motivating uh, these these forces in society. Therefore, the effort to uh, the effort to engender a culture of understanding in American life has to be organized well. You know what? That last. So first of all, I just thank you for the history lesson. I, I feel like that was super important to contextualize all of this and kind of help you and I locate one another. But yeah. that last piece was was profound and I, I almost feel like it's a it's a calling in of saying look there is an effort that is calculated to divide us and it, and 
I, I kind of hear you saying, and that, sh you know, you, you were talking about the common enemy that we, that bonded us together. I'm he almost hearing a little bit in your story that that should be our shared common enemy. Mm. That's our new shared common enemy is this yeah. organized effort to divide us. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah, I do think that way. Absolutely. Um, mm. Now it's, it, I think that, when you try to be thoughtful in this space about motivating people, broadly speaking, yeah. to embrace a, a cultural movement towards deep-rooted, in Better Angels, a, a phrase that we've, we've coined, um, uh, patriotic empathy. We, we, we use patriotic empathy as a way of describing the sort of uh, value and spirit that animates our work. And, and mm -hmm. we define that, I define that simply as demonstrating our love for our country uh, through the concern that we bear for one another, right? Mm -hmm. But to do that thoughtfully is to realize that on the one hand, um, in order, I think, to motivate people and unite people, we have to recognize that there is a common enemy. And it's easy enough to say that it's the political establishment or it's the media establishment uh, or divisive forces within the universities or the churches, whatever the case may be. But on the other hand, it's important to remember the fact that all of these in institutions are made up of, of human beings who are nuanced and complicated themselves, right? That's right, that's right. Um, and so my, um, yeah, I, I draw consistent inspiration uh, from, from Martin Luther King Jr. and the nonviolent movement um, that he led and, and Bayard Rustin and Ralph Abernathy and, and those who made up that generation of, of leaders in that space. And I think that what they were careful to do was to recognize the fact that on the one hand, there were certainly uh, particular groups uh, and even visible individuals like, you know, Bull Connor or George Wallace, if you could run down a list, who were clearly uh, conspicuous enemies of justice in their time. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, King was clear, to, was clear to argue and to teach that the true enemy was not the human being uh, on the other side of the bridge uh, who might have been trying to prevent them from crossing. The true enemy um, was the ignorance uh, or the malevolence or the hurt and the pain and the fear that operated within those people. Mm. So King was careful to say that the end of uh, nonviolence, the goal of nonviolence was not to defeat or humiliate the opponent, um, but to change his heart and to win his friendship. And that therefore leans upon a starting value of love as the virtue by which we transcend our differences and in a powerful way, move others to think in ways differently than they do that allows us to achieve the aims of justice and greater equality in society while also leaving our relationships in a place to where we can continue to live together and with each other's children and grandchildren the day after. And so in seeking to sort of take the, the efforts of groups like, like Better Angels and, and, and like uh, your organization and those of so many others and to sort of articulate a common spirit that weds us together, I think it's become vital to say that the thing that is capable perhaps of taking all these wonderful individual enterprises and giving them a feeling of a collective kind of 
volition towards social progress is to say that we are all bound together in a common conviction and belief in the spirit of love as something that has actual social power. And that was demonstrated, I think, in the, uh, in the nonviolent movement. And I think it is, it's holding to that as something that is more powerful than simply saying that we are organizing against the media or against the political status quo, even though those things are certainly true and necessary insofar as they go. Um, but it's like something else Dr. King said. He said that uh, what we seek to do is to create the beloved community. And in order to create the beloved community, we seek not merely a, a quantitative not merely a quantitative change in our material condition, but a qualitative change in our spiritual condition. Mm. In other words, we have to be uh, forthright about acknowledging the structures that are dividing us, but then we have to be affirmative in embracing the, the proper spirit by which we challenge those structures. Uh, that is to say, a spirit of love and understanding and patriotic empathy. And fortunately, I think that that's largely baked into the philosophies with which you and I and others, Tracy, uh, engage the work that we do. Uh, and so I see that as a larger philosophical context uh, through which we try and uh, cha uh, speak truth to power, as it were, uh, in, this, in this moment of uh, severe polarization. So I gotta tell you what's happening in me just listening to you. Um, it gets me really excited to have somebody who is the former vice chair of the Los Angeles County Republican Party. <laughs> you, and regardless of whether you're Republican, but somebody who's an intellect like you, use the word love like that. <laughs> so cool. Like well, who, who does that, right? I mean, I know Better Angels does, but wow. Yeah. It just kind of washes over me with a, a real reverence for there and and you're a, not to pick on you but you're a man <laughs> you know i mean not to be gender stereotyping but there's something very beautiful about having an organization have the courage to use the word love mm. Mm. as a social power right it is a word that is difficult for people to understand how to use Actually, I, I have discovered Tell that me. In, a Tell social, me more. in a social context, right? Well, and it's something that Dr. King um, dealt with in his own time, too. He was careful to say that, uh, uh, this is close to a direct quote, he said that love is not mere sentimentality or emotional mm -hmm. wash, right? Um, Dr. King described uh, love as being uh, as 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 love in the context in which uh, they use the term, as being something that was possessed with power, uh, and that love without power is weak and anemic, and that power without love is authoritarian and brutal. Uh, and so, wedding these two things together, the idea mm -hmm. of of love and power, is what gives uh, both moral substance. Uh, and also um, vitality uh, to both, ultimately. Um, but the conception of what it means to use love in a powerful way socially uh, is, is not, uh, has not been widely appreciated. Uh, during King's time, in his articulation of the nonviolent philosophy, you saw the power of that substance 
articulated in his speeches and writings and others in the movement. After King uh, died, I, it seems to me, and I've written about this, um, but it seems to me that the substance of nonviolence and love as a social value largely sort of receded from our cultural memory. And so we were left with the celebration of the man for his, for his moral courage, for his kindness, and for his commitment to justice. But we don't remember the genuine moral philosophical contributions mm -hmm. that he made that allowed for those things to take root to begin with. Um, and so part of the way he described that power was in basically saying that in, in leading with love and in communicating with love, we were able to speak to the conscience of the people who oppose us. And that does two things. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it signals to the opponent um, that you are not seeking to be an enemy, but a friend. And mm -hmm. to the extent to which the opponent, the individual who may be oppressing you, uh, is someone who does in fact have a conscience, someone who is in fact a human being. <laughs> uh -huh. Which by the way, I'd say that outside of maybe a handful of psychopaths is basically of everyone. Fair yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everybody. Um, you know, you optimize your ability to communicate with that person. But number two, and perhaps more importantly, you unshackle yourself from the psychological burden of hatred and fear that attends our own uh, ability to uh, live peaceably with people with whom we have striking disagreements. You walk into a conversation knowing and accepting the fact that the person with whom you disagree, assuming that person is generally sort of enthralled by a point of view that is prejudiced or malignant, uh, you go into the conversation understanding the fact that this person, if this person has a point of view that is all those things, this person is actually suffering from this point of view, right? Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, your proper attitude should not be judgment or condemnation, but compassion. Now, that also needs to be attended by a genuine willingness to speak the truth. But we can speak the truth in a way that is powerful, um, but not condemning, but not judgmental of the person who happens to hold the view. Uh, we can find, we can communicate with one another that in a way that allows us to express our concern and our compassion for the individual while still speaking truth with respect to how we feel about what the individual believes. But we can only do that if we have a heart to care about that individual in the first place. If our internal psychological conversation uh, is such that we are not judging or condemning our opponents in our hearts to begin with. And so that goes a long way towards explaining why the language, the social language of love has been lost to us in our current day, because it is a much heavier lift uh, for us to take the burden upon ourselves of loving our enemies. Mm -hmm. um, because um, it's, it's, it's an instinct that requires discipline. Whereas insulting people on Twitter or Facebook for having an opinion we disagree with takes no discipline. It's just an emotional reaction. So this is kind of the elevation of thinking that I think we, we hope to pursue. This idea that a person who may be prejudiced or be reactive on Twitter um, is a person who is suffering from their point of view is really profound. 
right? And that what I hear you saying is it's through your compassion for their suffering that there's the potential for elevating conversations to ones that might foster more love. Mm. Um, but I also hear that the compassion isn't wimpy, right? You're not saying, well, it, it's not that sent sentimental kind of love, like we're all just going to pretend and feel good. What I hear you saying is, but we're also going to speak the truth. But there's a way to speak truth that doesn't have to involve being oppressive back or, or uh, humiliating the person. Um, but man, it's a, that's, a nimble, that's a nimble dance, right? <laughs> to speak the truth from love and compassion is a nimble dance. Are there, are there tricks? Are there tools? Are there, what, what have been some of the things that you've learned through your work with Better Angels Mm. that maybe may not be so obvious, but really do help you do that nimble dance of speaking the truth with love and compassion. Sure. Well, um, one of the communication techniques that comes through in our workshops and in the things that um, Bill Doherty, for instance, uh, stresses is the importance in the importance of framing, particularly in sort of you know, one-to-one -one political conversations with whether it's somebody in one of our, you know, one of our red, blue, that is to say conservative liberal workshops, uh, where we bring together small groups from experience as opposed to argue points and so forth, or between two people at the Thanksgiving dinner table or just any dinner table, I guess. The importance of framing one's point of views uh, with the word I to rather than say, okay, um, this is this is rather than putting an opinion on the table that says something like, "Well, you know, immigrants are, are draining the welfare state," or people who believe in support uh, building a wall are uh, are, are racist. Uh, to say instead that um, uh, the way I feel, or in my opinion, um, the way I look at things, is that if we if we have a if we have an open border we risk losing the rule of law in this country. Or if we build a wall, the way I feel is that if we build that wall, it symbolizes a desire not to want to engage compassionately with the rest of the world and to keep people out who are suffering and need, need help. When you frame your opinions by saying that, this is my opinion, even if your opinion is right, even if your opinion is in fact the one that has more factual support for it than the other one. You nevertheless demonstrate a certain sort of humility because what, and, and, and openness and even vulnerability because what you're saying when you use the word I is that, you know, this is, this is a window into my feelings. And I have, I have feelings about these issues the same way that you do. And so the question becomes less one in that case of the differences in our arguments and more an invitation for us to try and reach out to and understand why the other person feels the way they do about an mm -hmm. issue. So suddenly we are not engaging an argument. We're, in, uh, we're not engaging the argument between us, but we're engaging each other as human beings on different sides of an argument. Uh, and that's a different sort of emotional equation than what you have when you're trying to win a debate. Uh, you know, you know, I love about what you're saying, because everybody would always lead with some kind of listening technique. But what you're actually starting with is a speaking technique, saying change the way you speak, 
and get way closer to your own words so that you're inhabiting them. Because if you don't, the other person can't actually connect with you because you're just right. inhabiting an opinion rather mm -hmm. than how you actually feel about something. And I think that's really clever and cool, right? Like I, mission accomplished, John, because I think I just learned something new. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good point too. I mean, yeah, you know, certainly you need to, there is a great emphasis placed on uh, listening. Um, I don't know if you know uh, my friend Pierce Godwin, but he has an organization called uh, Listen First, mm -hmm. part of the National Conversations Project. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, they, their uh, framing of things is that we need to listen first to one another. And obviously that's very valuable because there's not a lot of genuine empathetic listening at least taking place in our conversations these days there's more of a listening to respond right yeah. and so on the listening front we do want to listen to one another in a way to where we allow ourselves to sort of hear um just sort of where the heart is and what it is the other person is saying what is, what is the soil of feeling from which a person is articulating their own political uh point of view uh, and, and listening to that to understand sort of where the emotional center is and what it is people are saying, we can proceed to speak to that. Um, mm -hmm. But it is important for us to know how to speak as well, even even as we listen. And so listening empathetically comes for from listening for not the weakness in somebody else's argument, but for the authenticity in the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. and empathetically I think comes from speaking in a way that highlights our own subjectivity our own awareness of our own subjectivity mm. uh, and in that demonstrating humility you're sounding so, like a therapist now John <laughs> hanging out with Bill too long uh, yeah I actually me and Bill make it a point not to compliment each other too much each of us thinks the other one's ego is too big so I'm, <laughs> I appreciate it if these if these compliments towards Bill the, don't don't get around to him, but <laughs> I will disavow it if you tell him that. <laughs> um, but no, this is uh, and so we do want to you know conversations uh, can move in the direction of a virtuous a virtuous cycle of of empathetic listening um, and humble communication in a way that can breed understanding in a powerful way, even across wide gulfs of disagreement. But you do want to pursue them in that kind of a way. And so, so yeah. I want to ask you something though. Mm -hmm. And I may or may not be speaking from experience. <laughs> no, it's, this is very hard to do when you're the first person that's doing it, where you might be approaching somebody that is not coming from humility. Is it even possible to, to have one person willing to be humble while the other person is not? Is, can, you, can you be a good enough communicator that it softens the heart of that, uh, what, did you, what did you say, that, you know, the person who's suffering from their point of view? Right, yeah. Well, the simple answer to that question uh, is yes, and that it is inevitably going to be a harder task depending on the people involved. First of all, uh, some people are just um, quite a bit more, more bitter and dug in than other people. Um, mm -hmm. Second of all, 
being able to communicate in this fashion, it is a discipline. And therefore, uh, it's, it's not, there's sort of beginner and intermediate and advanced kind of levels of, of competency with respect to that. And, and frankly, we all have room to prove in terms of that. But I think what it looks like is that um, we, when you engage in conversation with somebody who is just sort of determined to see the worst in you, um, their tendency is going to be <clears throat> to try and insult you, to try and characterize your arguments in sometimes what feels like the most dishonest or, or, or uncharitable sorts of ways. There's going to be a tendency coming from the other person to try and connect you to all of the all of the evil or bad things that they see perhaps your side is representing. And our emotional reaction to that instinctively is to become defensive or angry or hurt uh, in response and to fight fire with fire frequently. Um, so it, it, it simply becomes a question of within yourself, can you see past the hostility to recognize the fact that A, for this person to speak to you or to think these things about you implies the fact that they're not seeing you clearly. Mm -hmm. And therefore that gives you permission if you maintain your consciousness of that, uh, to think about, to, to, to not allow that to affect your own view of yourself. To, in other words, recognize the fact that uh, it's this person who's not seeing clearly. And to help this person, you have to be able to shine a light that allows them to see you for what you actually are, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to punish them for being blind, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to maintain a certain centeredness. Mm -hmm. And if you can maintain that centeredness, if you can allow yourself not to be pulled into the emotional kind of vitriol that another person is, is heaping upon you, then you can listen to the things that they say and respond by saying things along the lines of, I understand what you're saying, and I think I'm starting to understand why it is you feel that because I, for instance, uh, believe in a woman's right to choose, um, that I'm guilty of murder, right? I mean, that's, that's a, a conversation that definitely happens, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so you can, even when somebody is caught in the midst of tremendous uh, rhetorical aggression, you can sympathize with the fact that they're having a genuine feeling. Mm -hmm. And that action right there, just calmly saying, I understand that, that, that you're looking at me this way. And I think I have a sense as to why, because you believe in the sanctity of the life of the unborn, and, and that's very important to you. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. What I want to tell you is that I, I look at this a different way. Uh, I think I have a different definition of when life starts than you do. And I care very much about a woman's ability uh, to make her own choices because women have fought for this for so long. And so because of that, uh, I have this sort of view about, you know, what, what our policies ought to be. In that, you know, in that exchange, you're not going to turn the other person's point of view around, and by the way, I, I could re-illustrate this exact same conversation going the other way, hypothetically. Yeah, um, right. But, but it sounds like you're not interested in 
that nobody in this in this conversation that you just modeled is trying to change anyone's mind. It sounds to me like what you're trying to do is convey to somebody that you are hearing them with a with a real ear for understanding who they are. And in so doing, you give the other person's anger less fuel to burn, mm -hmm. essentially, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is fire catches other things on fire, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And in the normal conversations we have, uh, we're, we're spraying fire around. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, you, uh, if you're not dry timber in a conversation, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so your centeredness keeps you, the centeredness that you were describing earlier stops you from being that dry timber, it sounds like. That is precisely it. It stops you from being that dry timber. And therefore, the, the sort of uh, the emotional volatility that the other person is feeling will diminish with each mm -hmm. round of the conversation because emotionally speaking, they have less and less reason to be angry as the conversation progresses. They yeah. may completely disagree, but the less angry they become, the more their ability, the more their own self-awareness starts to kick in mm -hmm. and the more their own capacity to think about the things that they're saying yeah. their thinking tends to grow. Um, in some cases, that just takes a lot of patience and a lot of endurance. And it's not necessarily... And, and practice, it. like you said earlier. Practice, right. And so, you know, it's not necessarily always worth it uh, to go into that kind of an exchange in every possible opportunity. Sure. But if sure. there are people in your life who you, who you really love, who you want to reestablish a connection with, mm -hmm. that sort of discipline is in conversation is the way to do it and if you're interested in in healing uh, society broadly speaking mm -hmm. in our or your or your local community in mm -hmm. conversations about disagreements that are really deeply rooted taking that into your civic life right mm -hmm. your social political life and applying that kind of discipline is the way to achieve that sort of relational progress in those arenas as well mm -hmm. Gosh, John, I know we're at the end of our time here, but I just, uh, this, this was so, um, I don't know, you, you came to this conversation with a new lens that was really invigorating for me personally, and I hope for everybody that's listening. Um, so I, I do want to tell you thank you for making the time out of your busy day to come talk with us, and, and gosh, we could just go, I could just go on forever with you here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I don't know if the podcast folks would. <laughs> they're like, well, wait a minute. We've only got so much time that we set aside to listen to this. But, but <laughs> um, we do have a little bit of a tradition for how we how we say goodbye, and and that is for me to get out of the way a little bit and um, give you the opportunity to offer a direct piece of advice or wisdom. Mm -hmm. Or simply a wish, remembering that our, our 7,000 volunteers aren't all in the United States. They're all over the world. And um, yeah, what would you want to say by way of wisdom or a wish to the listeners that sit on sidewalks all over the world? Indeed. Um, well, I appreciate that. And to everybody who's listening to this podcast, just keep in mind, I'm speaking from an American context, but the, the principles that work here in terms of, of, of empathy and, and love as a social value uh, in individual conversations and in social progress. I think that these are principles that, that will hold true uh, around all over the world. And the reason for that is because at the end of the day, I think that all human hearts strive towards 
peace within. All human hearts strive towards fulfillment um, and genuine connection with other human beings. I think we've evolved and have been designed um, in that way uh, to where ultimately, even though we, we feel negative emotions that bring up the worst in us, um, what the human soul really desires is deep connection. And therefore, my wish for everybody listening is to just remember the fact that there is power in love um, and that love has power uh, both to free yourself um, and to free others as well. All we have to do is bring this out of ourselves so that we can bring it out in one another. And so uh, my hope and wish for all you listening is just that you remember that and build on it uh, in your own lives. Wow, John. <laughs> I, you, I think you win the best ending award with that statement. It is from, from the deepest place of my heart. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. And we are going to continue to support and shout out Better Angels and, you know, my sweet affinity for Dr. Doherty's work and for the work that you're all doing. Um, just it's meaningful to me. I, I feel better knowing that you're all out there. So thank you so much for being here. Well, please do. And thank you so much, Tracy. It was truly a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.